Welcome back, everybody. As always, this episode of How AI Built This is brought to you by the terrific people at Cathcart Associates. Slightly biased given that they've employed me since 2013, um, but if you do need help growing your tech team, you will get better service from anyone else. And even during this global pandemic, we're, we're fully operational. So please do get in touch. Today in the podcast, I'm very excited to have Tam Hack with me. Tam is a senior data scientist at Jaguar Land Rover, who admittedly has had a relatively short data career, um, but has a really amazing story. And when she got in touch to be on the podcast, I was really, really keen to tell it. So I really hope you enjoy. She comes across as super passionate, um, really down to earth. So yeah, please welcome Tam to How AI Built This. Welcome to the podcast, first of all, Tam. Thanks for joining us. I think you'd actually listened to a couple of these, right? And then kind of thought that it would be cool to tell your story on it. Yeah, um, so I've listened to the past four or five episodes. Um, some of them I thought were quite engaging, um, even from the way that you designed the, the stuff that you post on LinkedIn. And I thought I wouldn't really want to be part of that. Are you only on the podcast so I can get George to do a cool caricature? Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm super curious what what you'll what will turn out for me. Um, no, he's done some great work, so it's been cool to get that. Just as like a little added extra. Uh, most of the podcast stuff uh, I've been learning on the job uh, with a lot of help from James uh, as well. So yeah, those two guys have made me look a lot better than I am. So normally we start in education, but you sent me some information yesterday, and I was looking through it, and it was quite interesting. So you mentioned that you're a twin. Uh, but not only that, she's also a data scientist in Manchester and you studied together. That's pretty mental. Yeah, um, we've always been together. We've always studied the same things and somehow we find that we're both data scientists and working in Manchester are quite close by to each other. Um, so that's quite fun. <laughs> is, there a, is there a crazy competitiveness or do you kind of both help each other more than compete? I think... For the first part of our education, it was crazy uh, competition until we got to uni. Um, we both started studying actuarial science and math at the University of Manchester. And we realised we really need to pull together and not compete because it was ridiculous, ridiculously difficult. So I think that's when we started to pull together. And e- even now, we're helping each other code all the time. So that's been nice. quite, quite fun. Do you think you would ever want to work together full-time? Uh, an interesting <laughs> question. <laughs> I think I, I see her at home all the time. Um, so I think I enjoy not seeing her for a few hours. Um, but it could be an interesting <laughs> concept. Could be could be an absolute uh, power team. Yeah. Um, now, I mentioned to you yesterday, too, I'm a twin as well, but I think because mm-hmm. we're... Uh, we're different sexes. I think that the, I don't know, maybe the closeness is different. I don't really know. Um, But no, it's cool that you guys are so close and do essentially the same thing. Um, And you mentioned there that you went to University of Manchester. Um, You started on actuarial science and maths, right? But ended up changing Mm -hmm. it quite late on, I think, kind of right at the end. You changed it to maths with business. Why did you make that change? I think that was one of the best changes that I've, made today and it was was a necessary change as well I was really struggling with actuarial science Um, it's known to be the hardest branch of applied mathematics and essentially it's value and rate of 
return analysis, but also risk appraisal for pensions, um, insurance and assets as well. So it's really like hardcore investment slash financial modelling. And I couldn't see where this would lead to in real life. Um, so then I thought I really need to change to a field of maths which would be broadly applicable. And that's where I found mathematics with business and management. And that essentially focused heavily on statistics and programming, which leads quite nicely on to the rest of my career. And that I found much more enjoyable and much more real life as well. Nice. It's a really good story as well that like if someone is quite far down the line of a degree, like changing it slightly is potentially yeah. a good idea if you're not quite sure it's going the way you wanted it to go. So I think that's a really good it's a really good lesson. Did you consider after your bachelor's maybe doing a master's or a PhD um, to kind of stay in academia or did you know that kind of you just wanted to get out and, uh, and work in industry? I think after three years of university for me that was enough. <laughs> at, at the start I thought I'd definitely have liked to have done a master's but looking back on it and reflecting on the experience that I had at university which was actually very very difficult. Um, I have no regrets of not pursuing more education and actually the commercial experience which I gained at that time for me that's been quite beneficial um, so yeah yeah no 100% and also I think one of the nice things about the industry you work in and suppose technology in general there's an opportunity for education kind of all the way throughout it it's not like one of those where you get the degree just to get in the door and then you never really use anything ever again like you can now change little things about what you're doing but learning all the time anyway yeah i think one of the big things about well both analytics and data science but especially data science is that need to constantly keep up to date and keep learning as well uh, so before i joined my current role i didn't know python at all whereas recently i had a need to develop python code for productionized data science so it can be yeah. at the flick of a switch um, that you just need to learn and adapt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're learning all the time and adding new skills, which is essentially what you would do in a kind of formal education setting. Mm. So yeah, you, you've kind of moved. You moved on from uni, and, and the first role was um, at N Brown Group, who are obviously a pretty big, pretty big company in Manchester, focused around kind of retail and uh, and fashion. And their data team's pretty big as well. I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of the companies that we work with, they maybe have a handful of data scientists, maybe a few data analysts, and then maybe a few kind of data viz, data engineer type people. I mean, I think mm-hmm. M. Brown Group must have, must have one of the biggest data teams in the Northwest, if not the UK. So that must have been a great place for you to, I don't know, kind of cut your teeth and, and learn from some good people. Yeah. Um, first of all, I'd say that M. Brown was a fab company to work for. And <laughs> I, I was there at the time by which time I had seen that they've transformed um, into becoming a very much data-driven company. And that was valuable experience in itself. I've had a lot of learnings from that. Um, But I had a lot of people to speak to and to learn from as well. And even when you go right to the very top um, with the director of data science at the time, um, I was almost finding leaders and inspiration that way as well. So that was... um, yeah, it's very good for me to experience that change. And I was actually an, an anomaly from that big data team as well. 
um, but still a part of it. So I was within financial services. So I was a single data scientist outside of that team, um, but still very much interacting with them. Nice. Um, and did you quite enjoy applying some of the things that you'd learned at uni from a kind of stats and programming point of view, but in a company? Did, did, was that kind of transition quite natural? Um, I would say in terms of transitioning, initially I had stepped back from the statistics and I was learning about big data and in terms of programming, programming it wasn't statistical programming, it was SQL. So that's how I started my experience in a commercial setting. But then also one of the focuses was not just the technical skills, it was the commercial awareness as well. So I was quite fortunate to be able to learn on the job about buying and merchandising, logistics and supply chain, and very much learning about the actual products our customers were buying. And then when I gained a new role as a senior analyst within financial services, that's when I was learning about how our customers are paying with us. And then everything started to come together. And then I understood why our customers were shopping with us. So, yeah, so you got a really nice kind of rounded picture of kind of the whole journey almost. Yeah, I think by a certain stage within my time as a senior analyst, I felt like I had that complete vision. And as much as I was learning about financial services, my immediate stakeholders were also learning about retail. So that was quite fun for me. Nice. No, it's great. And um, I know when we've spoken before, you mentioned that Obviously, as a senior analyst, you're doing various different things, but the kind of role of data scientist was was one that you were interested in. Um, but it also involved quite a lot of hard work from you, kind of outside of work, to pick up some of those skills that the the data scientist had. Um, and then when you got that role, was that a kind of real was that a really big moment, like getting that kind of data scientist position? Yeah, I, I would actually say it was a step back. So when I was in my first role as a data analyst. Um, that's when I had my first insight into data scientists, uh, data science from numerous sets of consultants that I was serving at that time. And I was super curious about what they were doing with the data that I was providing to them. So that's when I started to rapidly invest all of my personal time into learning data science. And I gained the almost like internal promotion to a senior analyst role. And that role was where I saw my opportunity. So it was initially a senior analyst role, but because it was a brand new role, I had all the freedom to shape it and be quite proactive about it and self-manage as well. And awesome. then, it, yeah, then it turned into a data scientist role. So that that was that was the turning point. Nice, I like that. Um, and I'm pretty sure you said this as well. You ended up kind of training people on R. Uh, so how did that come about? Were you Did you just like the language and kind of proficient with it? So it was an opportunity for you to kind of help the team? Yeah, so I had initially learned it at university, um, but I was seeing benefits to using it in real life as well. And I was using it on the job, but none of the other analysts were. And I very much wanted to share that with them. And part of my responsibilities was actually to create a rounded sense of data and bring the analysts together, which I'm quite pleased that that objective was assigned to me to bring a community through it together. 
um, that's when I started to train uh, numerous analysts across the business um, and a few managers as well were interested and I'm actually now I'm still doing the same training at JLR. Yeah no yeah. I, mean, I remember you said that and um, I think it's really cool it's a bit of a recurring theme that you kind of get given I don't know like small opportunities or windows to kind of shape something and then you just kind of run with it and make it work which I think is a really good lesson for people like you, you can have to make it your own almost and not just necessarily wait for people to ask you to do things or I don't know kind of fit into one box you can do different things so I mean everything you've said there is I mean, super positive um, about M Brown and, uh, and I remember when we very first spoke uh, and recently you said as well that actually leaving M Brown is probably the hardest decision you've had it's, so far it was, it was a very emotional time it's a super emotional time for me I really had to rely on support from my family and friends um, my mentors and a lot of my previous colleagues as well, which I'm super grateful for. But it also reinforced the value of people and of networking and creating, but most importantly, keeping relationships with people in professional life. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have been able to have gone through this change without all that support. Yeah, no, it's a, uh, another great point. I mean, uh, sometimes people laugh at me, but my job's all about kind of relationships and like network and everything like that. I've got so many contacts now from a kind of professional standpoint that started off relatively loose or there were kind of connections of connections, but the value in kind of building on that and keeping in touch with people is, is just so important. And I think now more than ever, I mean, now that everyone's stuck remotely working, there's been lots of changes at different companies, like having those connections is really helpful. But on the flip side of it being really difficult and and kind of leaving where you were, I have to say that the story of you joining your current company is one of my favorite stories ever from the podcast. And, and maybe, maybe just ever. So we'll set people okay. up a little bit. So would it be fair to say that you're a bit of a petrol head? Um. A little bit. <laughs> um, so you love cars, but specifically you love Jaguars, right? So before yeah. we get into your new role, how did that start? Because remember you said it was when you were very young. And then I'm pretty sure you made it like a life goal when you were quite young as well to, to get a Jaguar. Yeah, that was like my number one goal was to get a Jaguar. Um, I started following the brand when I was nine years old. So I was super young. And then How did that come about though? Like, did, did one of your parents or family members or anyone have a Jag or did you just see um, it? They, they're all, um, they were quite disappointed when I bought my Jaguar because <laughs> they said I should have got something German. Um, but I just liked the look of them at that time and I just carried on following the brand even when they almost had a rejuvenation when Tata bought them in 2008. I think that was a very good point in time for them and then from 2012 they started inviting me to previews and to uh, performance events as well which I've took my family to and then I I knew that I was sick of my Honda Jazz and <laughs> I want to trade it in for a Jag and I've there's no way that you traded <laughs> in a Honda Jazz for a Jag yeah they, 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 they couldn't believe it you know at the dealerships but yeah, it was, it was very serious for me and I was 22 years old at the time. I got my offer when I was 24 and yeah, I'm engineering Jaguars now and 
it's very much a story. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I, I remember we first spoke about this and like I was just like buzzing to get this on the podcast because I thought it was so cool. Like you see a lot of people that say kind of follow your passions or like whatever that might be, but I don't think many people can say that from nine years old they were fixated on one thing and then the opportunity arose. Um, so did you see the role at Jaguar Land Rover as a kind of senior data scientist in Manchester and did you just think that you just had to go for it? Uh, it was quite interesting. So because I, I was always following that brand, um, yeah. I saw that they opened an office in Manchester in summer 2018. Yeah. So I knew I knew that they were there. Um, they didn't have any data science roles there at the time, but they were very much working with data. Um, and then I saw a data science developer role advertised. Um, but then when we actually looked at what that role meant, when I got when I secured the role, it was very much a data science lead role um, with lots and lots of opportunity for me to transition from data scientist into a data science leader. So there's been it's greenfield. So there's been so much that I've been able to do. That's really cool. And I remember you told me as well that um, I'm sure this is true. Correct me if I'm wrong, but some of the feedback you got once you'd secured the role um, that maybe you weren't the most senior or experienced person that went for the role. Like they maybe didn't know exactly what they wanted, but you kind of just blew everyone else out of the water when it came to just kind of that passion understanding of the brand. Um, And essentially you probably didn't have to do any research, right? Because you already knew everything. Yeah. So in terms of company research, I, I didn't have to, do any um turned up to the interview and the i think they said that the passion was very very palpable not only for data science but also of jaguars and i was very forthcoming and i said i don't know much about range rovers or land rovers but i can more than make up for it for my jaguar knowledge um so that's how i approached the interview nice you probably knew more about the brand than the people interviewing you, which is quite funny to think about. Um, I, I actually asked them, um, I, I saw a headline in the news a few days prior and I said to them, like, what, what does this mean? Um, this, the flagship, which is the XJ, they said that they're stopping production of that. And they said in the interview, you won't be disappointed. It will be reborn in electric form. So, so yeah, they were keeping me, uh, Pacified. <laughs> nice. That's amazing. Yeah. So there's a good tip for people, some interview prep. Do you see anything or, or have you guys talked about anything that's maybe a little bit more futuristic with kind of data and cars that either you think might happen or you would just like to see happen? I think um, there, there's four major disruptors within the industry. That's autonomous driving, mm-hmm. um, connected driving, electrification, and shared mobility. Um, I think the one that's probably the most important right now is connectivity, just because we have so much data and many OEMs such as BMW or Tesla, they're massively using that to their advantage, but also electrification as well because of different regulatory changes. We're having to adapt our focus on that. And when we've been looking at consumer studies, that's actually what consumers are more focused on now of the four areas yeah. um i'd say the most futuristic one is probably autonomous driving but i think that's probably slipping down in terms of uh consumer priorities but not in terms of our own internal priorities 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think consumers maybe uh, partly because maybe they don't think it's possible, but also because a lot of people, probably like yourself uh, and certainly me, um, I quite enjoy driving. So like the thought of not doing it, like I would rather be driving. So I'm not really bothered. I'm not really bothered about autonomous cars. But yeah, you mentioned the connected stuff, and also electric vehicles and what have you. I mean, well, I drive a GTI and I love it, but practically speaking, an electric car would be quite good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't have a driveway, so like even just things like charging it and mm-hmm. uh, the distance it can go. Like I think these things are all they're still quite far away from like from the mass kind of user base. Um, but do you think using stuff like data? Um, analytics could help with that? Yeah, I think in terms of data analytics, uh, what we can start to do is think of um, charging points um, where there's perhaps a lack of them or where we might have too many. Um, Because I know that consumers are quite worried about if they're able to charge their car at at certain locations. Um, We can also look at geographical uh, analytics um, we can also feed our marketing preferences that way. Um, but also what I'd say is our iPace, the Jaguar iPace, that's been a very award-winning car. And yeah. there's a lot of data analytics le- leading up to that as well. Yeah, no, I bet. And what was the other thing you said? There was the autonomous vehicles, connected cars, electrifying electrification. And what was the last one? The last one is shared mobility. Um, so what's that? So that's when you have you have a car and you might have it on certain days of the week. So you may you may share the ownership of that car. Ah, um, okay. So you might want an F type on the weekend, but you <laughs> might want an XF Monday to Friday. Um, it could be something like that. A Honda Jazz Monday to Friday. <laughs> yeah, that was me before. <laughs> and then the F type. Saturday, Sunday. Yeah. Um, no, I like that. Um, and then I suppose from a connected cars point of view, you see a lot of the new, well, like you said, Tesla and um, even just some of the like the dashboards on some of the more modern cars. Do you mm-hmm. think there's, lo- is there loads more to come from that? And is everyone focusing on that massively? Or do you think there's maybe almost like a ceiling of what's actually useful opposed to what's maybe just quite clever? I think... I think there's definitely more to come in terms of what we do with the data. Um, in terms of the actual dashboard, even in a very physical sense, I think that can, there's scope for that to change quite a lot as well. Um, from previously being perhaps a six or seven inch screen on, on the front to being much more elongated. And that itself presents a lot of opportunities. But also with that, we get user interactions and preferences. So a lot of data coming off that. We also have um, sensoric data, uh, which is what we use quite a lot as well. So that might be thousands of data points from inside the car, um, the state of the car itself, or it might be situational, such as what's happening outside. So in terms of connectivity, there's so much more that has not been explored um, by many OEMs. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there's loads to do. And from your point of view, getting back a little bit more to your role, so you joined essentially as the first data scientist in Manchester, right? So yeah. um, you've ended up kind of looking at how can you grow a team? How can you really utilize data? I think you mentioned this to me as well, kind of more as a um, like centralized offering rather than 
each individual component of JL are having data professionals. Like there's a data team more kind of centrally, is that right? Yeah. So in terms of analytics at JLR, there's the corporate analytics, which is very, very established. And then there's the new venture, which is vehicle analytics. So that's very much, I think the idea when I joined was that it's going to be a centralized team. Um, so that's actually quite interesting because when I was at in Brown, I saw how they fashioned their own centralized team. So the timings on that was quite perfect. I had a lot of learnings from before um, and I've used that when shaping this very brand new team. Nice. And how um, how have you gone about that then? I know you mentioned to me that you've looked at things like the job descriptions and the roles that you might need and, and all of these things that you would consider maybe more just from a kind of logistics point of view. But when it's actually come to, to grow in the team, did you use some of those learnings from from M Brown, but also just from personal experience about how you wanted to actually build it and kind of the kind of culture within the data team? Yeah, so in terms of the culture, that was a big change which we were trying to effect, which was a data-driven culture. So again, that's something which I believe M Brown were, um, it's something which JLR at that time were seeking to become. Um, so that's very much the culture we were trying to have within the team, but affect outside the team as well. Um, but also in terms of the inner team culture, I just wanted to keep it fun and flexible. So whilst we were thinking about ways of working, I was trying to seek how can we keep it effective, but not too stuffy and overbearing, which it can be sometimes. No, I agree with that. And if you quite enjoyed the challenge of growing a team as opposed to being maybe a senior who was involved in some of the um, decision-making processes, but normally maybe more from like a interviewing point of view or something like that, has it been quite a nice change for you to really kind of shape the team as well? Yeah, I think these are opportunities which I would not have had before, but I, a lot of the learnings that I had from before have very much impacted the way I've shaped my current situation and team around me so even when I've been looking at job specs I've been very very specific on the skills that we'd be looking for um, the behaviors which we'd be looking for and actually the previous experiences which we'd be looking for as well. Yeah I think there's um, there's still uh, um, it's a whole different discussion to have but there is still a kind of um, thought process within some data science hiring that a PhD means better for example, and it's just, again, I don't want to generalize across whole industries. Yeah. Um, I've changed my tune on this before, so it doesn't really matter. But um, it's just not really true. Like, you can hire some very, very good people who maybe haven't got that academic background, or maybe they do. I think it makes yeah. sense not, not to focus on one or the other and just yeah. speak to people and see, kind of, you mentioned behaviors. I think that's a really good way of putting it. Um, yeah. I mean, te- technically speaking, it's quite easy for you especially now with the experience you've got to judge someone's programming ability, for example, mm. but it's not as easy to judge kind of certain kind of behavioral attributes or um, how they just go around problem solving maybe. Yeah. I think I used to be quite conscious of the fact that I never had a master's or a PhD. However, the, with the more experience that I've gained, I've learned that actually my, it's good to have technical skills and certain academic um, experiences but also the soft skills are very very important too I would actually place equal importance to technical skills as much as soft skills to actually 
get your data science products over the line. Um, 100%. You'll, especially in a centralized team, you have that dependency on different SMEs across the business. So that's stakeholder engagement. Um, but also you need to have stakeholder influence as well. So those, and uh, oh, I also forgot communication. I think that's the primary soft skill to have as well. Oh yeah, I mean, I think from a data scientist point of view, maybe four or five years ago, and obviously beyond that before, but kind of you would almost get away with the data scientist who just was given a task and then they turned it into something. Yeah. Um, I think now where businesses are really trying to exploit the value of kind of data analytics, maybe rather than just AI or machine learning, but kind of data in general to get what you want done to kind of get pushed through all the way to production, or you're going to really have to have an influence and an ability to talk yeah. to, to people. And that must be easier for you than some people might find that just because of your knowledge of the brand and what the company actually do uh, overall as well. Yeah, so that knowledge certainly does help. Um, it helps me communicate with various stakeholders better um, and certainly when I'm communicating with the board, which is happening increasingly more often, um, that they're less interested, at least in the first instance, of how you've done something, but more interested in why you've done something and even more interesting, interested in the value. So we're very much a value-led data science team yeah. and there's so much pressure to deliver value, especially when you're in a greenfield environment. No, that makes sense. And I think it's maybe a, a good lesson for any kind of aspiring data scientist as well. And it might sound harsh, uh, um, but when you are doing something for a business and the business is trying to make money, mm-hmm. the fanciest kind of best data science solution might not actually be what people need. Like they want to see either a cost saving or something yeah. really innovative that no one else is doing and it can be used as an advantage later down the line, which is maybe what some people miss, maybe not just in academia, but a lot of academia can be around research and a, a kind of relatively long period of time getting to perfect something. Whereas you might not agree with this, but I imagine in industry, there's not always time to make everything perfect. Sometimes it just needs to work. Yeah, I think the one of our focuses is on value, but also it's speed and modernity in the solution, but also having it optimal as well. So before, and this was like a personal learning experience, uh, maybe about a year and a half ago, I said to my boss, like, do you not care about methodology? And he said, no, I, <laughs> I only care about value. So at the time, I didn't understand it, but because of that pressure to deliver value, but also that desire to deliver value, it's less about having the more complex approach, more about having the appropriate approach, which will deliver it in a timely way, but also that's fit for production as well. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And it's really good learn um, for anyone, I suppose, working in data science. Um, another big part of, in fact, before we get onto that, you mentioned that you didn't know any python before you went to jlr so you just kind of started on well started on r at university then some sequel at m brown and then mm-hmm. moving into r again how was it from your own experience because i speak to a lot of people about the transition from r to python and i know some people um talk about it online quite a lot how have you found it has it been a relatively easy transition or is it something that you've had to really work at to get your head around it is quite a daunting 
um, experience learning Python because I was so comfortable with R, whereas with Python, I didn't even know which environment was my preference. Um, so there wasn't a single standard. So there's some exploratory work to do there. Um, I spoke to many people at M Brown um, on what they'd go for and also what how they'd recommend that I, I should learn Python. But in, in the end, the best way that I learned it was being faced with a real life problem. Um, I could have spent hours doing tutorials or uh, coding boot camps, but yeah. the best way for me to get it done as quickly as I needed to was just getting stuck in with a real life problem. Nice. And have having you, have you quite enjoyed that? That would be cool for all the time. Yeah. Um, it, it's been a challenge. Um, I always like to keep learning, and Python's actually one of the biggest things I've learned technically during my time here. So I've, I've very much enjoyed having that as, as a skill. Um, but also where, what I do now is I do use R, but I use Python as well. It's not one or the other. It's both of them where it's best appropriate. Nice. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I've spoken to loads of data scientists and some are really, really strong on R, some are really, really strong on Python, and they will not see past that whatsoever. Yeah. Um, whereas with the ones that I speak to who seem to be carving out kind of a really good path for themselves are, are kind of using both whenever the the kind of situation arises that you should use it. I mean, a lot of people I think that I speak to say that the Python's quite good for when it actually goes to production, but R can yeah. be quite good for spinning things up quite quickly. Uh, and just kind of using them in conjunction is a really good idea. There seems to be a lot of people talking about Julia as a replacement for both. <laughs> so yeah. who knows, maybe maybe there's another language for you to learn very soon. Yeah, my, my twin actually suggested that just last night. Um, oh, really? Yeah, so got some reading to do there. Yeah, apparently it's really interesting. I don't, I, I'm not technical enough to understand why, but everyone who uses Python and R seems to like the, I don't know what it is about it, but like the kind of basics of what they've looked into, whether or not it's kind of viable for production, I don't know. But yeah. um, it is interesting, and it's one of those things we said right back at the start that you're always learning anyway, so there's no harm in, in picking it up, even if it is in your own time. And then one of the things that's not again, maybe not directly involved in what you would consider your day job and, and one of those things that isn't technical, um, but you've been quite heavily involved at JLR on um, their kind of diversity and inclusion. Uh, I don't know if it's their policy, but their kind of, uh, their approach to it anyway. So um, I think one of the things that we had talked about before that in the kind of automotive industry, it's very much a kind of male dominated industry. And then if you put if you look at the world of AI and data science, definitely less so, but still very male dominated. Um, mm-hmm. So you're now you now work in both of those fields. Yeah. So um, <laughs> how, uh, how how's that going? Um, and also, what what are you kind of trying to do to I don't know help? Yeah, so I think you summarised it nicely. It, it it does feel like I'm in a doubly underrepresented space um, <laughs> of automotive plus AI. Yeah. Um, so I, I obviously celebrate diversity and I've come from a working environment where I, it, I just never thought about it. It was very, very diverse, whereas here is something which I'm trying to change and not, it's not a JLR-specific thing, it's an it's industry-specific thing. Yeah. So the best way that I can address that and I would like to impact some change and see some more female data scientists working within automotive um, is by public speaking, which historically I never liked. 
to do, um, but I haven't needed Nobody, to. nobody <laughs> likes doing it, and if they do say they like doing it, they're lying. Are they lying? Oh, 100%. <laughs> I think so. Um, but I have a real need to do that now. So I started by going to my former high school um, and trying to catch their ten- attention whilst they're still making career choices. Um, but also going to the University of Manchester as well, um, could potentially go back there. And then also speaking to within um, industry expert groups slash women's leadership groups because that lack of diversity is true throughout different levels um, within large automotive organisations. So just raising awareness of what what we're doing and the projects that we're doing, also of our new Manchester presence, um, all of those things do help. Yeah, no, that's, that sounds really good. And I, th- I like the idea of going down to high school level rather than you see a lot of people going kind of solely to universities or solely yeah. to tech meetups in Manchester or whatever. I think there's a place for all of it, but it's a good idea to get ahead of the curve and, and talk to people at a young age where they can maybe make a decision early on, yeah. um, which is really clever. And yeah, you, you said you're going to you kind of speak at events and, uh, and even just attending events as well, just to try to kind of network and build uh, build on the people that you know as well. Yeah, networking, I think I mentioned before, but it's super important um, depending on your career goals. Um, So attending events is a really good thing to do. Um, I always like to try and drag some friends with me and then you end up having a good time. Um, But also before I would have just attended events, now I attend and I seek to speak at events. Um, so it's been a bit of a change. No, I like that. And there's definitely, uh, we spoke about this off air, but um, there's definitely a speaking slot at ManCML whenever we're allowed back in in, uh, yeah. in attendance. I mean, arguably we could do it. We're going to try and do it virtually as well. But I think it would be amazing to look at some of the work you've been doing in the old style that we've done it before, where you can really kind of present something and show it as well. Yeah. Um, I think there'd be loads of value in that. Um, yeah, I look forward to collaborating. On that'd be great. Like that. We also uh, we posted a podcast today with Leanne Fitzpatrick from Hello Soda. She's um, a really good example of doing some of the things you've mentioned about kind of going into uh, universities and also just speaking at events in Manchester. So um, uh, it's a really good one uh, or a good person to know as well. Okay. So that would be great. And is there anything you've learned from building your team and the kind of cultural element and hiring process that you found that's worked quite well to kind of encourage more females into data science, either in the automotive industry or maybe just generally speaking, especially given that you and your twin both work in data science as well? I think what what I have learned is it's not an isolated factor, but the way that we're trying to encourage it through different age groups, um, that's quite effective because it could be that those young uh, people will come to your organization and do AI in 10 years time but it also gives that insight to people ad- actually internally as well who were perhaps in different teams who were already doing some form of analysis but not not in the fashion that we're doing now so ad- actually when when I talk of a new team we started very small it was myself another senior data scientist and an agile delivery lead and now I, I think I've lost count but I think we're perhaps 20 or 30 of us and that's across um, different Jaguar Land Rover locations and that's from just looking at skill set 
and I think that has been quite helpful to to look at um, to address diversity as well. So has that been looking at internally who has certain skills that could easily segue into like a more what you might call traditional data scientist role and they had those skills already they just weren't using them every day or they were using them on something different? Yeah um, so we were just looking at skill sets not at not at the role that they're in now um, ju- just almost like collating their skills but also from the SVR training that I'm doing now um, I did spot a few people there which I was keen to bring them on as well because I knew that they had the skills um, but some of them were saying that they would like to very much get on board with what we're doing so it's nice to address it externally but also internally with existing colleagues as well. Yeah I think it's an amazing lesson there's a guy that um, I actually talk about him far too much on the podcast so luckily I've never named him because he'll start getting a big head but um, he's in Manchester and one of the things mm-hmm. he did um, at his last company he'd noticed that a few people they either called themselves analysts or like they had some title that was very specific to the department they worked in, but essentially what they were doing was data analytics. Mm. Um, and he noticed one of them had written, I'm sure this is true, um, and he might not listen, so it's fine. I'm sure he, he'd written something in Python or R to automate a process that he had to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did this off his own back. It didn't really tell anyone. It just made his life easier. So when the guy found out about it, he was like, I could definitely use someone like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so he ended up doing some kind of lunch and learn Python courses like every week or so. Um, and he ended up bringing him in as a data scientist. And he said it's one of the best kind of, it's not a hire if you like, but one of the best hires he's ever made. And again, that was just from looking internally before you go posting a job role or anything like that. Yeah, I think um, that's a nice approach. Yeah, so I'm glad it's worked for you guys as well. And another thing that we we have to mention before uh, before we wrap up, but I noticed on, I think it was this week on LinkedIn, that uh, you're on a list of 250 women who are aiding AI advancement in 2020. This is right, correct? Yeah, I think you commented on it. So. I, I did. <laughs> um, I've been working with Rework for a while now, um, specifically on their diversity and leadership initiatives. So that was almost like a nice way to get some recognition of, some of the work that I've been doing um so that was super nice and yeah a lot of my uh, former colleagues congratulated me as well which was nice and it grabbed the attention of my current colleagues so that was just nice no it's really good and it sounds like absolutely well deserved as I said um earlier in the podcast most of the conversations we've ended up having and, and even today as well a lot of the things that you've ended up doing have just been on the back of kind of either your own initiative or you've kind of spotted something that could maybe be turned into something bigger and I think it's a really good kind of lesson for anyone in data science regardless of age because you're relatively young to be a, a kind of lead data scientist um, but it doesn't really make a difference if you can add some value and take things on your own initiative really is what I'm trying to say I think. Yeah um, I completely agree with you less about the years of experience but more about what you can actually do um, and in terms of being proactive that that's just my style um, for a long time I've been almost self-managing and it's been fun for me that way it's been fruitful for my stakeholders um, and when I joined JLR that was probably the blankest slate I've ever had we only had a data lake um, so it was all 
to play for there and as advice to have an action list of my first six months and then she said what's your next 12 months going to look like so if you always have an action plan you always have goals to work for no i, I love it and um, was it quite a good experience then given that n brown's quite a mature data environment was it quite good to see the opposite side of that where there is just the data lake and you essentially to do something with it because um, not a lot of people will get that opportunity most people will go into something that even if it hasn't been started massively, like the tools will probably be in place already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm very grateful for the way things have panned out. And I had so many learnings from my time at M. Brown, um, who had actually made a decision to become data-driven and had undergone a digital transformation. And I would, I would actually read the annual reports. That was like one of my hobbies. Was to read <laughs> annual reports whilst I was running SQL and just learning how they did it and actually why they did it. So by the time I joined JLA, I had most of it was like good learnings to take there. Um, a few things I did tweak, um, but it's been very nice to be able to make an impact at, at JLA. No, it sounds amazing. Thanks very much for coming on. I've got two last questions. Where is the best place to find find you on social media? So you, you mostly use LinkedIn, right? Yeah, um, I'm super active on LinkedIn. So that's the best place to find me. Nice. I'll make sure I put a link up when we post it. And I'm sure the question everybody wants to know, do you still drive a Jaguar? And if so, what is it? <laughs> yeah, I've got an XS. It's my baby. <laughs> I would love an XJ. So I said that to my board director. Instead of a pay rise, you got an XJ. Yeah, I'd, I'd take that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll maybe we can make it happen. All right, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for reaching Thank- out. Thanks for having me. Uh, that was loads of fun actually um, I knew it would be from a conversation I had with her a couple of weeks ago um, but it was really good to be able to tell kind of the full story uh, and I said it on the podcast and I genuinely mean it that it's probably one of my favourite work kind of stories that we've said so far in the podcast or told so far um, and just generally in the in the six seven years I've been doing recruitment the fact that she just had this kind of crazy passion for, for the brand that Jaguar has um, and in the opportunity to, to use her skills uh, to make a difference to that and become kind of essentially their their head of data science in Manchester, it's kind of seriously impressive. So it'll be great to see where Tam ends up, and we'll definitely get her along to um, the next physical version of Mancamel. Um, so please keep your eyes peeled for that. Thanks again to Cathcart Associates for sponsoring, um, and thank you to you for listening. We'll be back very soon with another episode. Cheers.